the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here coming to you live from the Freedom Hut. Team Buck, great to have you as always. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging out. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. On the lines. We got Action Movie Quote Friday in effect, if you would like to uh, throw some my way. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Move to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action Movie Quote Fridays. See what you got, team. Uh, We also have a lot of news to discuss today, including the kind of fun political analysis around the Bannon departure. And I, I feel like I'm a, I'm a one-man band on this one, or I'm the only one who's out there saying it. But, you know, Bannon has—I like—the guy's got good hair. You know, no one ever gives him respect. The guy's got good hair. And I just—I'm always hearing about how he's dressed like—you know, he's dressed like a bum, and, you know, he, he, like, needs to get a razor and shave and all this stuff. But, you know, respect the hair, everybody. It's, it's pretty good. We'll talk about how Bannon is out, which you might very well have heard. In fact, the breaking news, as I come on air here— is that Steve Bannon, the senior advisor to President Trump, former chairman of Breitbart News, is back at Breitbart tonight and was leading the editorial meeting or called together an editorial meeting of Breitbart News today already. It has already happened. So uh, we will get into the analysis of what that means. I have it's so fascinating because among my friends and confidants who are stalwart Trump supporters, some of them are very, very cons- don't like this, very concerned by this, um, are the, uh, very concerned by this state of affairs with Bannon, and some are uh, not worried at all. They think that this is a situation that will be manageable and everything will be fine and there's really no problem here. So I don't know which one, you know, he'll advise on the outside. It's going to be great. He'll work more for the president or he's going to go to war with the president. It it can't be both. So someone's got to be wrong here. And I'm hearing it from I'm hearing it on on both sides. Uh, So with all of that said, uh, I also want to bring you. Uh, up to speed with all of the latest on the uh, Spain attacks, which we'll be getting into uh, a bit more of that. In fact, I think we'll probably do that before I talk to you about Bannon. And so uh, that's, yeah, I, th- I think we'll get into Spain because it's there's been a lot of developments there. Also, there's a free speech rally planned in Boston for the weekend where the I, I believe the mayor of Boston is saying... Stay away. Uh, Stay away from that free speech rally. You know, stay in your car. Don't go to the rally in Boston. Yeah, so we'll see. And then uh, they got some, oh yeah, The Economist, The New Yorker, and I think Der Spiegel, Guten Tag, Der Spiegel is here, uh, has put a, uh, they've all done these clan covers of of Donald Trump. Um, So... 
you know, these covers of Donald Trump where he's in some sort of clan like hood or there's some I'll talk to you about what that looks like. So there's a lot, a lot to get through today. And um, you know what? Actually, I'll start with let's start with Bannon. Let's start with Bannon, because I'm really curious to know what all of you think about this, too. Um, This one, my, my general instinct on these matters is to think that. No one advisor in a presidency uh, matters all that much because they just advise. It's really the decision maker. And in this presidency in particular, Donald Trump is such a center of gravity for media attention, for for everything. I mean, he Trumpism is named for the guy at the head of the movement, right? I mean, this is not just this isn't a movement that has been. Uh, appropriated or led by or latched on to uh, by a, a president of a, of a party, of a political party. This is a movement that is inextricably tied to the one individual, to Donald Trump. And so Bannon on the outside, I think that he probably is more effective uh, for the, if he wants to be, is more effective at helping the president by going out there and taking it uh, to taking the message to the media. So then the question just turns into, is he angry with the president? Is he upset at President Trump? There was the meeting. I didn't talk to you about it uh, earlier on in the week, but there was that meeting or that uh, interview that he went on at some length about U.S. and China and trade war and this long term, long term strategy approach to what we have to do vis-a-vis China and it was pretty clear that something had changed with Bannon's status in the White House because someone who has his level of media savvy, as was said by countless talking heads already this week, is not getting on the phone with an unfriendly, meaning leftist journalist, and just spouting off about the president. When you're a senior advisor to the president, I mean, especially in the aftermath of the Scaramucci thing, hey, I didn't know he was recording it. You know what I mean? Uh, I, it didn't seem... It didn't seem like that was going to be a um, a mistake that he would make without meaning to make that mistake. There's some- uh, so we will have to see um, whether Bannon himself is, first of all, angry about all this, but also if it makes any difference to the administration. Uh, some people are upset, and let me just give voice to that part of all of this. There are those who feel like Bannon was an essential component of Trump's connection to the base, and that without Bannon there, you've got Ivanka and Jared, senior advisors, who are definitely centrist, at least, in their inclinations, and you have... uh, Cohn, who is a former Goldman Sachs guy, there is a very establishment, establishmentarian feel now in that White House. Now, I know our 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 pal, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, is still there, and Stephen Miller with his fearless, I, I want to call them buck slaps of the media, but they're I guess they're Miller slaps, technically. Uh, but he's still in there, so it's not completely gone, but there's definitely a change in feel in this White House right now, and... While General Kelly instituting order and being chief of staff feels like it is a a positive development in a lot of ways, he's not a, he's not a political pugilist. He's not somebody who's going to roll up his sleeves and not just throw punches, but occasionally throw some kidney punches. Because in D.C., you, you got to be willing to. He's up against progressive Democrats, everybody. I mean, they're playing for keeps, right? I mean, Kelly's 
I worry that he's too honorable for this game in D.C. I, I worry that General Kelly isn't somebody who's going. And when I say worry, I mean, that's a high class problem to have to be to be too honorable. But I just don't think that he's the type to understand, you know, to really he's used to engage understanding who the enemy is, engaging the enemy in D.C. It's. And nobody's the enemy and everybody's the enemy. You know, it's a very different, a very different battlefield, very different set of circumstances. But we'll see. Maybe he's a re- to become a uh, to become a, a general with with that many stars on his shoulder. And he's got he's got to understand how to oper- operate in a large bureaucracy. That much I know. And bureaucracies, for those who are ambitious, become uh, very, very nasty places quite quickly. I'm sure it's true. I've never served in the military, but I'm sure it's true in the military. I know it's true in the intelligence agencies. So that, 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 there is no doubt there where you got to, if you want to rise up, you've got to have sharp elbows and play the game a bit. So that's my my sense of what's going on at the White House. I, I think it is everyone who is pretending right now to, to have the answers is probably getting a little ahead of themselves. We will see how this shakes out. Um, I don't even think the people in the White House know. I, I think we could have the the inner cir- Trump's inner circle sit down and tell us what this will be in terms of meaningful or not change in direction for the White House or not. And only only time will tell. I'm going to try to uh, step away from the cliche, step away from the cliche, Sexton, for a moment here and just say that the, the lines are indeed open. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-BUCK. 2825. We can re- return to the Bannon issue in a little bit, um, and certainly we'll get into Trump's, the the caricatures of Trump. Well, it's one thing, look, mocking Trump is fine. I think he's even fine with it, as long as it's in the spirit of mocking. But posing or positioning the president as a member of the Klan, is, that's too far. That's unacceptable. And a lot of magazines are doing that now. And you have this uh, this woman, I think she's a state senator, who actually was calling for, did she? I mean, she calling for the assassination of the president. I mean, this is that th- there is too far, right? There, there is too much. There is unacceptable. Um, but I know that I wanted to, I, I promise you, and we will uh, get into a follow on to these attacks, which we really can't call the Barcelona attacks anymore because they're it's the it's Spain. I mean, there are three places where there have been terrorist incidents, two of them terror attacks with fatalities, uh, the most uh, notable one in Barcelona. But there was another one. Uh, that occurred in uh, Cambrils. So we'll talk about that, and uh, I will lend some of my counterterrorism experience and expertise into that analysis. But it's a Freestyle Friday, so we'll hit whatever topics you want on the lines, serious stuff, action movie quotes, whatever you've got, we'll do that. Uh, If you want to talk about terrorism, we can do that too. Uh, I've got some fantastic guests joining later in the show as well. uh, Former Navy SEAL Brandon Webb and my former co-host of Real News at the Blaze, S.E. Cup. We'll be uh, joining the talk as well as Sarah, uh, Sarah Westwood of the Washington Examiner. She's at the White House. She can tell us what what it's like down there. So, as the kids say, the show is uh, well. As I was going to say, ready to rock, but that's as the kids would have said in like the '80s or the '90s, which I guess I'm I'm dating myself here. Uh, we are lit. That right? We're lit in the freedom. There we go. Thank you. Okay, we're lit. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North. General of the Felix Legions. Loyal servant to the true Emperor Marcus Aurelius. 
<laughs> so so Ty, Tyrone, and Amy are my my Freedom Hunt squad in here. They're the ones that uh, keep the show all running. And Ty, just so you know, has has had the assignment this week of picking uh, action movie quotes that he's just going to run. And I have uh, that is of course Gladiator, one of the greatest uh, action movies of all time. And I know some people would say, Buck, it's really more of a period uh, period piece, historical drama. But I mean, if you watch that movie, you're like, no, nah, it's an action movie. So that's a phenomenal movie. So good. Uh, and, and there's more there's more history to it than people. Uh, Commodus really was like a, a, a dirtbag bad guy. Re, what re, uh, was the emperor? Marcus Aurelius, real character. I mean, there's some real stuff in there. I'm just saying some, some real things. Um, there wasn't a uh, specifically a general to speak of named Maximus, but. You know, it's a cool name, though. I should name, oh my gosh, if I get it. Well, if you get a dog, you name him Max. A lot of people have that, right? But Molly and I are, are still talking about dogs, and Maximus would be an awesome name for a dog. But if I name the, if you name the dog Maximus, it cannot be, I mean, no offense to anybody. It just can't be like a teacup chihuahua, you know? No. Or anything that ends with, with a, a, a what is it, um, a, poo, a poo, like a malty poo, you know? No. Some of you are like, what are you even talking about, Buck? These are dogs that people have in New York. They're like hypoallergenic and like they're they're designer dogs. Designer dog until about two years ago was also called a mutt. (laughs) But now they're designer dogs. And they if you go to a pet shop in New York City, they cost like three or four thousand dollars. I know some of you are like, I should just sell some of my mutts to New York City to loving homes, of course, only. But. Uh, all right, I got some calls here, and then we got to get to our sponsor for this half hour, Valerie uh, in Kentucky on uh, ninety nine point one out in Kentucky. Good to have you on. What's up, Valerie? Hi, Buck. Okay, so my quote for the day is truth. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> That's of course a few good men: Jack Nicholson, Absolutely. Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, United States Marine Corps, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. That's right. And Bannon, you got some Bannon thoughts for me. I do. Okay, so I've heard on the news all day long, even from the right, that, oh, my God, Bannon is gone, and he's the one that got everybody to vote for Donald Trump. Um, No, I didn't vote for Donald Trump because of Steve Bannon. My husband didn't vote for Donald Trump because of Steve Bannon. My dad, my whole family, people at work, everybody in my county that I'm aware of doesn't read Breitbart and didn't even know who Steve Bannon was. But we know who Donald Trump is. And so that's the newest I guess, fake news that they want to put out there is that, oh, we voted for Donald Trump because of Steve Bannon, and if Steve Bannon's gone, well, Trump will be gone too soon. I just don't understand how everything has got to be a dig on him every single day. doesn't matter what day it is, what he does. They're going to come up with whatever they can come up with to nail him to the wall. Uh, Yeah, we'll, we'll see, Valerie. We'll see if the Bannon departure means much. For the White House, my suspicion is no. My suspicion is honestly nothing will really change. Although I don't think I, I don't know. It's more about the optics, right? It's what signal does this send than it is about the actual functioning of the White House. Uh, but thank and you for what can they play on our fears with in the news? And I think that he'll go back to Breitbart and he'll continue to be the same friend of the president he has been. He's just going to work on it from a different. Way. Yeah, from outside okay. the administration. Cool. We'll see. Our Shields high, Valerie. Thank thank you for calling in. Have a great weekend. Uh, let's get to Douglas in Ohio. W-H-L-O. What's up, Douglas? Hi. I was running from my radio to turn, turn it down or off. That's uh, <laughs> all right. Catch your breath, man. It's Friday. We're hanging out. we got plenty of time. Yeah. it's uh, Well, I, I 
wanted to welcome you to the air. Uh, your predecessor, Megan McCain, was uh, a thorn in my side, and uh, <laughs> you are, but you're a refreshing uh, replacement to the. Last well, I, I I appreciate your support for me and my show. I I must also tell you I'm 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 fond of Megan, and you know it's everyone's yeah, and, you know everyone in this business has their has their fans and their detractors, but I'm I'm very I am very pro Megan. Well, you you your program is much more tuned to what I'm used to listening to. You're you're closer to Rush Limbaugh than well, you, you know, know Rush was kind enough to let me fill in for him uh, for yeah, a number of years actually, which was. Kind of show I like to listen to. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Um, any anything anything on your mind about the day's news or anything like that? Uh, yeah. Well, I've I started listening to uh, Mika and Joe. <laughs> you did, uh, Mika and Joe. Yeah. What, did did you did you see them like holding hands somewhere? Or are you talking about on TV? No, I started listening to their program uh, six months before Trump was elected. Okay. I wanted to see what the other side was going to do with Trump. Mm-hmm. Because I knew six months before the election I was going to vote for Trump. Okay. Uh, nowhere, nowhere, no way I was going to vote for Hillary. I just, and uh, anyway, he got elected. And, uh, but now they, are, they have been trying to destroy Trump since they've been on the air. Oh, yeah, they've turned on him. And that's been, by the way, when it was good for their ratings and they felt like they had access to the White House, Mika and Joe were ve- were very, well... Yeah, they were chummy with... They were very chummy with Trump for a while. That's right. Yeah. Well, the thing is now, though, they have switched their, their, uh, their technique for destroying Trump. I don't know whether you caught on to it or not, but uh, you should listen to them for a while because what they're doing is they... Taking what Trump said, and then saying, "Well, here's really what he meant," and they say something else. Oh yeah, they're Trump translators, sure. Yeah, and then, then before they get done with that quote that Trump said, and what they said, he said he, they said he thought they thought he should say. Well, by the time they're done, what they said. That they right. That that then becomes the soundbite. I I know that this happens with the media all the time, though. It's not. It's not. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. <laughs> Doug. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Look, I appreciate your kind words about the show, and I thank you for your thoughts. And uh, shields high. Um, <laughs> Doug does not like what Mika and Joe. Look, I understand. I mean, I, that show. I don't get it. I don't understand the appeal because you get these. I know they have these. Uh, it's supposed to be like the smart, cool, like the smart, cool kid table at lunchtime. You know, it's like they bring on these big Wall Street types and these very wealthy, very connected guys to do some political analysis. And 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 they all sort of sit around. They're just like, I mean, Trump, it's just appalling, isn't it? I mean, I just got back from the Hamptons. And let me tell you what America's thinking. It's like, you know what? I don't know if you know what America's thinking. Tell me something. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? I always ask that of all my prey. In the Batman with Michael Keaton, huh? I see Ty. Ty is a... Uh, all right, all right. So, yeah, this, for those of you who don't know, Buck Sexton here with you. We've got uh, Ty's been picking out clips 
his own action movie quote. So it's not just people calling in who want to see if they can they can test the action movie man here. It's uh, we've got our, I, I, you're just gonna have to trust me. He did not he did not clear them with me beforehand. But I will say next time we can get a little we can get a little harder on these ones. Just let you know, Ty. Yeah, it's a little. This is a little bit like the Jeopardy that's in the New York City cabs, which is the easier version of like it's like you know this is this president of the United States was the first president <laughs> who is George Washington. Though that's the Jeopardy in New York City cabs. For those of you who spent any time here, it's like give us the real Jeopardy. Jeopardy, come on, come on, Trebek. Don't you miss that? By the way, that was those were the days that SNL when you actually had funny sketches. Now it's just social justice warriors pretending to do sketch comedy. It just stinks. As, as, I mean, I can't even remember the last good SNL sketch I saw. Then again, I don't watch it that much these days. Then again, actually, the old head writer was my classmate from high school. Believe it or not, from uh, he was. Uh, Colin Jost was my classmate at uh, Regis High School, um, who was reputedly, uh, I will have you know, they're not even paying attention to me in the HUD right now. Uh, he was uh, rumored in page six to be seen gallivanting around New York City with uh, Scarlett Johansson. So a lot of you are like, Buck, who cares? I know we're going to get into more important stuff in one second. Bob in Virginia on WKCY. Save me from my irrelevant uh, commentary. What's going on? Uh, not much. Just calling to say hello again. Uh, the Batten thing, basically, I don't think it's really going to matter that much because supervisors, I don't think ever plays into anything big. Uh, I would be worried if, you know, McMaster, Kelly, and Mattis left. Really, if Mattis left, that would bug me big time. Uh, I think uh, his cabinet is still intact and, you know... Uh, there's, no, I mean, there's no basis for him to. I mean, to get to get rid of Mattis, people would just be like, what, what, what are you doing, right? I mean, unless Mattis had a legitimate you know, health I, issue or something that, and of course, that would be Mattis's decision. That, that I, I do think he's he's short of Jared and Ivanka, and actually more so than Jared and Ivanka, because they may decide that they just don't want to keep doing this at some point. I, I wouldn't be surprised if either or uh, both of them relinquish their role as senior White House advisor to go back into more private sector life or or just not being so under the microscope all the time. It's got to not it's it's not fun, especially for people who are used to they're used to public attention, but not this kind of public attention. I, I think especially, you know, Ivanka is used to people respecting and liking her. And just because she's attached to Trump, I mean, She's his daughter, but just because she's a part of the administration officially, there's a lot of heat that comes her way. Yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, you know, I think these things is just baloney going on right now. And, uh, you know, we've got a rough week with Charlottesville and you got two crazy, uh, you know, I guess different view people's going at and they're both to me are garbage. Don't want to see them. And, uh, you know, everybody's all hyped right now. But uh, I'll give you a little uh, movie clip uh, from this. Uh, there's a, a saying that some general said, fix bayonets. Now, what's that from? That's an awesome line. I don't know what movie that's from, though. Well, if you watch Edinburgh, Chamberlain uh, said that when they went downhill against the rebels and on the little round top and routed them. Because they're out of ammo, and he said, "Fix bayonets." You know, I, I will tell you something. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. And, and Bob, uh, I, I shield time, and I appreciate you coming in. The period in U.S. history that I, I, if I could take a week or two to read in on one period in U.S. history, it would, it would probably be the Civil War. Um, I've, I've spent much more time 
uh, well, like 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 everybody listening, I'm sure a, a lot of reading about the Second World War because that's just I don't know. I feel, I feel like conservatives are all very well versed in the Second World War and and just the 20th century in general because it's more recent uh, and the revolution and the founding in that period. Um, I'd say that the the place where I could do the most, I could withstand the most. So actually, if any of you have any really good Usually, when I'm asked for books on the on the Middle East or political philosophy or communism or these are areas, uh, anything having to do with the Muslim world, jihadism, any of that stuff, I, I've got literally stacks at home, and and also I can pull them off the top of my head to usually suit the needs of anyone requesting. But if, if I, I would be curious to know what the audience thinks about the best two or three books ever written about the Civil War, because um, I I'd, I'd like to like to do a deep dive of my own on that one. Um, I've, I've seen glory. I don't think I've seen, did I just see get, I don't even know if I saw Gettysburg in the theaters, um, but it's a period in history. I'd like to spend more time uh, reading about quite honestly. So that's something that I'm adding, adding to my agenda, my to do list. Um, with that, we're going to make a bit of a, a hard turn here into, you know, we'll do it on the, on the other side of this break. Let me go into a break now. Cause I want to talk to you about the terrorism here. Here's the, the basic update is that this was a complex uh, ISIS-inspired. I actually think ISIS-directed, although that's just my analysis. That's not yet uh, That's not yet confirmed or reported, um, but that's my hunch. I think ISIS-directed, meaning, well, I'll get into what that means. It doesn't mean that they necessarily trained with ISIS, but I think they were in contact uh, with the Islamic State. Uh, they There were two terrorist acts and also a house that exploded, and it, uh, all these pieces fit together. Uh, I'll talk to you about all the latest on that with a buck brief on terrorism. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the buck brief. Spain hit by terrorist attacks in the last 48 hours. Uh, here is what we here's what we know. There was the major vehicle attack killed 13 scores more wounded in Barcelona. We talked about that yesterday here on the show. Then there were additional incidents and now we can connect the dots between them. There was another vehicle attack in Cambrils, which is uh, hour to drive from Barcelona. And there was a house explosion in Al-Kanar. So this is how we believe, it it is believed right now, all of these different incidents tie together. We're talking about now a complex jihadist terrorist cell of eight suspected jihadists who were planning much more widespread carnage than even what happened, as horrific as what happened was. They were planning casualties that would have easily reached into the hundreds, perhaps even over a thousand. They, this uh, house in Cam, uh, this house in Alcanar is really at the center of it all. It, the house went first. Uh, it was thought that it was a gas explosion, and which is something that can happen. I just, as an aside, I was uh, on vacation over the Fourth of July weekend, and somebody was killed uh, tragically in a, a gas explosion at a farmhouse in Pennsylvania that was a mile or two down the road from where I was, maybe a few more than that. But I, I heard the explosion. I mean, you could almost feel the blast from it. It was just a leaking 
gas line that went and uh, somebody was killed in that explosion. The house, by the way, that I saw it was gone. I mean, it was just obliterated. So they uh, initially thought this al house explosion was that. Well, it turns out the al this is in Spain, um, the al explosion was a bomb factory, an IED, an improvised explosive device factory, where you had this terrorist cell was preparing using gas canisters to outfit vehicles with explosives and to uh, engage in an attack would have been similar to what happened in Kenya and Tanzania, where you had massive car bombs set up that killed, uh, uh, I forget what the casualty number was, I think hundreds, certainly hundreds wounded, I think well over a thousand wounded, and, and the um, those strikes, that was back I think in 98, uh, pre-9-11, those were two of the biggest hits that we took from, from jihadists, uh, so the uh, bombings of the uh, embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, so they were trying something like that. And they had already, uh, they were going to rent a very large vehicle. And again, the reporting on this is still in flux, and some of these details are getting changed or added to. They wanted to rent a very large vehicle and just pack it with explosives. And they, I think, were turned away for that vehicle, was the report that I read. They wanted a truck. So they wanted to literally build a truck bomb. Uh, Then they had smaller vehicles. And they were going to, these vans, and they were going to fill the vans with explosives. When they, well, when the, it's in bomb making circles, they'd call it a, or when people analyze these things, call it an own goal. Usually that means when the bomb maker blows himself up. Well, it was an own goal on the house. They blew up this house in Alcanar. And then they decided, okay, as soon as authorities come here, uh, we, we are clearly not all of them are in the house, right? So as soon as authorities come here now, they're going to figure out what was going on. There's all these canisters everywhere. They're going to ask us questions. We don't have answers. So we got to go. So the terrorists who it is, uh, as far as I've seen so far, are all Moroccan nationals living in Spain, at least the ones that have been identified. So Muslim North Africans uh, living in Spain, the terrorists went, went after Uh, Barcelona with this vehicle attack, similar to what has happened in in Berlin, in London, in uh, Stockholm and in the south of France and Nice. So that was the that was the secondary plan. The primary plan was to pack vehicles full of explosives and set up enormous VBIDs, vehicle borne improvised explosive devices. Uh, doesn't seem that these guys were trying to turn these into SVBIEDs, meaning suicide attacks. They wanted to set up car bombs and try to get away. In fact, there was a getaway car on the outskirts of Barcelona, which uh, tried to drive into a police checkpoint. And, and I believe that driver was either taken into cut. I think he was killed, actually, in, in the gunfire. One police officer at the Oh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So Barcelona, you had 13 dead, many, many more wounded on the Las Ramblas, um, where they were just mowing down pedestrians with this with this car. Uh, dozens more uh, wound, uh, dozens of countries were among, uh, had nationals that were among the wounded. We did lose an American. Uh, so then from there, because some of the drivers, they believe one of the drivers, uh, the driver got away. Uh, they went to Cambrils, and this is the part where I think it's still being verified. 
but you had five terrorists in a vehicle at Cambrils, and they also had knives. And they went after police there, and they mowed down a person. They killed another person in Cambrils, which is a resort area near uh, Barcelona, within a, an hour or so drive. And they ran over a police officer, and then the police officer engaged. I believe one cop took out five of them. So uh, good for that Spanish cop for uh, you know having tactical proficiency to eliminate. Because even you got five guys with knives get the get the jump on you. Depending on the circumstances, you're still it can be tough. I'm assuming he probably only had a sidearm. I don't know. I probably only had a nine millimeter sidearm. Which if he's got five guys coming after him with. Uh, with knives, and you've only got a nine millimeter. That's that's actually can be tough. Although maybe he had a, a, a submachine gun on him. I don't know. It depends. It depends what the Spanish police may have equipped him with. So uh, the that was for uh, that was the end of, of that incident. So you've got the Alcanar house explosion. These guys then go to Barcelona with their vehicles without the explosives that they were trying to build, and then they had a. Uh, then they went after, and there was the checkpoint leaving Barcelona. They think that was the getaway vehicle, by the way. And then they went to Cambrils for another vehicle attack. So this is a complex, large cell, large terrorist cell, operational terrorist cell. The Islamic State has claimed responsibility for it. Those are the facts as we know them, as I understand it right now. Uh, they, they're still looking, still a manhunt. They're still trying to find at least one, I believe. Uh, there may be others tied to this. And they are trying to make... And so keep in mind that if there's even one guy out there, very unlikely that he's going to try to you know, reintegrate and just lay low. I mean, it's probably going to go out fighting. And so there could be another incident. So all he has to do is get in a car. All he needs is a car... For another attack. That's part of the problem. He doesn't need a firearm, doesn't need explosives. A vehicle is all you need for what could be a mass casualty attack. And if you're on the run, maybe this guy decides he doesn't need to forget about renting a truck. He just finds a, all he needs really is a knife, and then he hijacks a truck, and now he's got the weapon that he needs to kill 50 or 100 people. So it's tension still very, very high until they're clear that they have uh, figured this out. So this is uh, now. Now here's my here's my sense of this. Now, this is analysis. This is not reporting. I think that based on the way this whole attack went out, it may be an incident of or an instance of remote control jihadism, and that's when there is a uh, somebody who is assigned really to be the point of contact for a, a cell. And instead of allowing these guys or telling these guys, hey, come to fight, because ISIS is in, in Syria, they're surrounded, they're losing Raqqa, it's, really, it's much harder to get there than it was a few years ago, and it's much more likely, in fact, now, if you try to get into Syria to fight with ISIS, that you're going to get caught on the way, then you're going to end up even fighting alongside, you know, these Islamic State comrades. So what remote control terrorism allows is you contact, you get in contact through jihadist circles online with somebody who is maybe maybe operating from Raqqa or from Islamic State controlled territory, and they walk the would-be jihadists through online uh, the different stages of the attack planning. 
They walk them through, here's how you communicate. Use this encrypted app. Here are, here's the targets that you should be looking for. Here's how you should do your surveillance. Here's how you know you're under counter surveillance from the police. Different communication methods you should consider. Uh, basic tradecraft, basic skill set for the terrorists. I think that that may have come into play here. I think also that that's that somebody was probably trying to walk through one of these individuals how to build the bombs in uh, Al-Qanar. Uh, so they may have been in contact with a jihadist, Islamic State-based uh, jihadist, or just anywhere, who knows where, who was telling them, this is how you build these bombs. And because, remember, there was a, clearly a, an intent to build bombs, but a lack of skill here. I mean, to have the whole house blow up, the guy obviously messed up which makes me think there wasn't really much hands-on bomb maker training here, but there might have been somebody giving them instructions about how to do it. They could have also just found this on their own, and there's no individual directing them, but I, th- I'm, I have a hunch, this is a hunch, that it may have been somebody trying to walk them through the bomb-making process, and also that's how they had in place Plan B and Plan C. Get the vehicles, get that all ready, build the bombs, get them to this stage, then move them into the vehicles, then emplace them. Okay, well, you obviously made a mistake because you blew up the house. Now just go with the vehicles. I think there was a there was a mastermind that may have been remote to all of this. It may not have just been these individuals on the ground. Again, unproven, but that's my that's my sense of where this is right now, and we'll see in the, the days to come whether that's in fact the case. It could just be there were one or two guys who were able to plan this through. And uh, nobody on the outside was in contact. Really, Ty? You think I don't know bad boys? I love bad boys. I love bad boys. They're freaking out in there because they didn't think I would get that one. Are you kidding me? That's Martin Lawrence's finest cinematic work. And it's actually, it might even be Will Smith's finest. I'm not, I'm not even going to lie. It is up there. Bad Boys is phenomenal. Just so those of you know, they're, they're, the, the team in here, Ty and Amy, they thought they'd get me on that, on that action movie quote. But no, you, you guys got to bring it. If you're, I mean, it's got to be, that was an iconic quote. I'll give it to you. You can't, it can't be like, a, you know, uh, would you like uh, grated Parmesan on your pasta, sir? Like, it can't be a line that has no meaning, but... Those of you out there, if you think you can beat me in the action movie quotes, let's see what you got on the fly. We got every line in here is lit, so I want to take those. We have some other stories to talk to you about as well, and uh, we're going to get into some guests later on in the show too. So it won't just be me doing my thing in here. But I, I'm I appreciate the respect given from the from the squad here. They're like, yes, wow, Buck actually do- Buck obviously watched way too many. Uh, way too many action movies growing up, uh, and still does apparently. I, I, Goodfellas was on AMC last night. No matter where that movie is, I can watch it. No matter what phase of it, if it's in the middle, the beginning, the end, I'll, I'll still watch it. Although it is funny to watch uh, Joe Pesci when they have to blur, they, they have to like change half of his words. So you know, he's like, "Are you, are you freaking talking to me?" <laughs> You're like, "Yeah, they're they're changing a lot of Joe Pesci's uh, a lot of Joe Pesci's statements." Um, all right, lines lit all over the place. Uh, Phil in Virginia. Welcome to uh, the Freedom Hut, sir. What's up? Hi, uh, I was uh, driving home and I heard you mention that you would uh, like to get into the Civil War uh, much more. I, uh, like you, uh, am a big student of World War II. I've got a wall full of books on that. 
But I also, before that, uh, as a kid, I read uh, some books by Joseph Altscheller, which were really novels, but it uh, were it was the type of novel. Yeah, historical was, historical uh, fiction. Right. Yeah. And they were fascinating. It went through every major battle in the Civil War, and I couldn't get enough of it. So then I got into other ones uh, big time. And uh, if you want to get into the, 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 the two uh, uh, things that I recommend, you know, as, as, as a, uh, a beginner, uh, there's a guy named Shelby Foote. Both, both of these authors are dead now. Shelby Foote was from Memphis. He wrote a three-volume history of the Civil War. So Shelby Foote's three-volume history of the Civil War is one of your recommendations, okay. Right, and Bruce Catton's Civil War is a three-volume condensed into one book, which might be easier. But Tell me that author's name one more time, sir. And I'm prejudiced. Huh? Tell me that author's <laughs> name one more time, the second one, Bruce. Bruce Catton, C-A-T-T-O-N. Okay. All right. All right. I will, I will go on Amazon. I will, I will check them out. Anything else you got in your mind, Phil? Well, that, that, that was it. Uh, you know, I listen to the, the stuff, and uh, I get aggravated. I, I, I'm so aggravated with this mess. I can't even uh, listen to normal networks or anything anymore. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you listen to this show, sir, and it's an honor to have you. So thank you very much, and Shields High. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for the suggestion. Uh, Barry in Mississippi, WBUV. Hey, Barry. Hey, Buck. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I, too, I too, am, am still on the uh, war between the states, or you might say the war of northern aggression, uh, because it, it's in my crawl real bad, too. Let me say, over a quarter of a million men fought and died for the South that did not own slaves. You know, why would these men fight and die when they didn't own slaves, slavery was about the rich people. Well, they were fighting for their state. They were fighting for the independence of their state. People don't realize back then, uh, folks had a much more uh, much more loyalty to their state than they did to the federal government and the Washington D.C. Uh, conglomerate. So when when you know the state came along and said we need your help to fight the invasion from the north, they joined up and they fought. So it, it was not about slavery. This this myth that the Civil War was all about slavery and anybody who fought in it was a racist and a slave owner, it's just a myth. And so now all those people that fought for independence, just like the Patriots fought for independence, are considered racist and demons. Uh, and I think it's just a big travesty. You there? Yeah, I'm Barry. I'm just letting I'm just letting you speak. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I'm assuming that you I'm assuming that you uh, are. In favor then of keeping most keeping the monuments that are still the monuments that are left. There's a lot of them. Yes, and I'm also more in favor that we teach the young people what really happened. You know, the South said we're not going to listen to what you're telling us, and the North said yes, you are. And the South said, well, we're not going to play this game anymore. We're getting out of here because it wasn't against the law then for a state to secede. And so, and of course, you know, the state the South started it by bombing the uh, the fort. But essentially, they said, leave us alone. And the North said, hell no, we're invading you. In fact, we're going to kill you, pillage you, burn you, and beat you until you submit. And the South will finally submit it. So it wasn't it – wasn't, these guys weren't fighting for slaves and slavery. They didn't own any slaves. They fought for their state, just like we read recently about Robert E. Lee. He detested slavery. He was, a North, he was an American soldier, but he wouldn't fight for – the union because he was more loyal to his state 
And that's the way people were. They were all leery of the federal government and the big bureaucrat in D.C. The state was was primary, right? And that's what they were fighting for. So it's it's not just about keeping the monuments. It's about understanding what really went on in our history. And in the southern half of the country, we're not racist. You know, we have all kinds of friends. As a matter of fact, we probably – well, I'm not going to get into that. But we're not racist. The generals were not racist. The whole war was was not really about slavery, although that was the starting uh, point. Uh, Barry, slavery slavery was a big big part of it. Let's let's not get let's not well, get carried away. Your slavery but, was. But, a, but again, what did those six hundred thousand men die for? The six hundred thousand trying to keep the union together or break. Well, the Barry, union? a lot, but a lot of to to be to be fair, a lot of men are called into service to fight for to fight for ideas and causes and things that. They are called into service, right? But the actual purpose of the war, the actual reasons for the fighting are decided by other men and for other reasons. So, you know, there there is a people are called up, right? And they go and they fight. But the reasons for the call up are you do your duty for your well, in this case, you're talking about your state. But for many people, it's they're doing their duty for their country. But that doesn't make it a that doesn't make it a righteous cause. Right. Let me just in, in Imperial Japan. They were fighting for Japanese fascism, but people were serving their country, right? So it's everyone who was fighting in Imperial Japan wasn't necessarily a bad person, but the overall cause was wrong. The overall cause was immoral. And that's why when when people look at the Civil War now in in retrospect, you know, there's... And look, this is an argument, by the way, I'm pretty sure it was was it George uh, H.W. Bush who made some stop at the uh, cemetery for the Wehrmacht, which was the the gen- you know, the overall uh, uh, the, the, the Nazi, I'm sorry, yeah, the no- Nazi Germany's uh, war machine. He stopped in and was at a, at a cemetery for Nazi for, for soldiers, I'm sorry, German soldiers of the, of the Third Reich. And people were saying, well, you know, Nazism is obviously one of the great evils in all history, but is every German who ever fought under the, under the banner, you know, there was a there was an interesting debate and argument there, right? I mean, SS guys, exactly. pe- people at the death camps, they know exactly what's going on there. But if you if you lived if you were a twenty year old living in in uh, Berlin in nineteen you know in, in 1942 and you're you're supposed to go off and fight for your country are, are you are you as bad as hitler i mean these are the historical debates and arguments that that people will continue to have and i don't pretend to have all all the answers barry but i i do think we need to keep in mind slavery was a very big part of the civil war i, I will say that very big I, we can't we can't get too far all right i, I don't I, I respectfully barry I, I do have to get on to our next call but i just i, I want to put it was a very big part so let's not let's not get too carried away but thank you for calling in and shield tie uh, Lisa in California um, on the iHeart app. Hey, Lisa. How are you doing? I'm Happy good. Okay, I wanted to ask you, because I know you're going into this, but Finland had a knife attack today, two dead, eight wounded so far, in I think it's called Turku. It's near Helsinki. And I'm wondering your thoughts just on the fact that we're having one to two somewhere across the European continent. Muslim attacks every week, all summer long. This is really bothersome, and I'm wondering if this ties into, you know, the chaos that's going around the world. What's your opinion on all this? I'm going to let you go and let you go sure. on. Sure. Let me, let me do this, Lisa. And Shields, hi. Thank you for calling in. I'll address the terror attack in Finland, a country that rarely gets any, any headlines, especially uh, along these lines. Uh, terror attack in Finland, and just my general sense of... 
what feels like a wave of jihadism in Europe and, uh, well, it is statistically a wave, uh, why why they're facing it and what lessons we can take from it. Because it's important as well that we look at, well, it's, it's not... This is not impossible as a as a problem that we would face here, too. What is different about Europe from America when it comes to the jihadist threat? Um, and then also, I'll probably, if I can, get into uh, some of these uh, covers of magazines that are showing Trump as, as KKK. It's just, it's just wrong. I'm, I'm an optimist. I have never been as discouraged as I have been this week about mm. our country. Not the people of our country, but the leaders of our country. Mm. There is a, a central corruption of the spirit at Oof. the core of all of this. When you keep making excuses, uh, you get to the center of it, and there is, as Peggy Noonan was calling for love, There's all I see is self-love, and that is not leadership. Ted Cruz, who would have thought that Ted Cruz... Uh, more compassionate and loving and show more character this week than the president of the United States. It's just totally confounding. I, can I, that's Andrea Mitchell of MSNBC. I, I have to say, don't you notice how she's she's calling for she's calling for us to be more loving and Americans to come together and then just takes a swipe out of nowhere at Ted Cruz, you know? It's like, hey, you know, we all need to be nice to each other. I mean, even that, like, slimy, evil Ted Cruz was being nice this week. It's like, you don't understand irony, uh, do you, Andrea Mitchell? You know? T- take it, taking a taking a uh, cheap shot at Ted Cruz. <laughs> you're calling for unity and love, and you're like, I mean, even Ted Cruz was being kind of nice this week. It's like, oh, maybe, maybe you're not part of the solution, Andrea Mitchell. Maybe you should just be uh, a little bit nicer about stuff uh just putting that out there so i I said i would speak about uh and i and i will i think i will you know what we've we yeah i'll i'll do it on the other side of the break because i want i wanted we got we got some calls up now that i wanted to take uh i'll talk to you about because the finland attack is is a knife attack i think one person killed a few wounded not a not a mass casualty incident and there's not a tremendous amount to say about it specifically other than yet another jihadist terror attack uh, where they went low tech and uh, innocent people died and it just is meant to psychologically uh, upset us and it's meant to slowly degrade and destroy our society that's what it's all about it's meant to uh meant to change the way we live our lives and make us think that we cannot live in freedom and security so i'll get into maybe a little more of that after the break for now though uh roger in ohio on wman welcome to the freedom hut hi buck how are you good thanks for calling in got an extra movie quote for you all right let's see what you got okay here we go i read your book you son of a blank Thank you for blanking it. Um, I did. Yeah. Uh, I read your book. Hit the buzzer. I don't know. What is that? It's out of the movie Patton with George C. Scott. Ah. They were getting ready to take on Rommel's uh, tanks, and he was standing there watching the America, his tanks just beating the heck out of uh, Rommel. I have seen that. I mean, I love that movie, that opening sequence. Oh, uh, that wow. opening speech is 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 a great is a tr- a truly classic oh. cinema moment. It's fantastic. 
I, I won't quibble time. too much with you, although I do think that Patton is more of a war movie than an action movie. Okay. I, I I'm just, I, I, I know that's where we're getting into the gray, because I before said Gladiator's action, but I think it's, you know, it's it's a gray area. It's a gray area. But it's look, it's a great movie. Anything else in your mind, Roger? Are we going to roll? I love your show, man. Shield tie. Shield tie, Roger. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, we've got uh, Joseph on WBUV, Mississippi. Hey, Joseph. How you doing, bud? I'm good. Brother, uh, our, the worst enemy I've ever seen in 26 years of service has been the United States media, especially over the last eight years. These people are keeping people blinded and they're lying to people. The American people, where where is there a line to be drawn with you with media? These people can tell us the wrong thing every day, and there's no ramifications. There's no if they lie to us. Oh well, they lied to us, or they didn't tell us the whole truth. The problem that we're about to have in this country is very large, and I think you know what it is. They say it's extremist Muslims. Well, it is. We're about to have a huge problem in this country because we've allowed too many of them in here. If you've ever read the project, you know what's about to happen. We did in the military. We I can't really hear what the the pro is that a is that the document that's about the Muslim Brotherhood infiltration or something like that? Is that what the project is? Yes, sir. And have you ever heard of the forty forty five ways to bring down what was it? The forty five ways dang I mean I just forgot what it was. I'm, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with that one. Communist Manifesto. I'm familiar with the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you pay attention to that, you pay attention to the project. You can see what's going on. They're doing their very best to pull us down. And if anybody thinks that these large Muslim countries, especially Saudi, does not have control of our media, you're wrong. Yeah, the, Sa- the Saudis have a lot of power that is that is unseen, even still because there's so much money, even with the oil uh, price where it is. Uh, Joseph, thank you for your service and thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. We would uh, I would have kept him a little longer, but actually, it's getting it was very hard for me to hear Joseph on that connection. Uh, Rick in Maryland on the iHeart app. What's going on, Rick? Hi, Shield High Buck. Shield High. I just want to say thank you so much. I'm probably one of the very few conservatarian psychologist in the People's Republic of Montgomery County. Oh, wow. And, yeah, oh, even worse, I'm one of rather famous uh, medical school's faculty. So I'm very much alone, and you arm me for all the debates that I either willingly or a bit begrudgingly get pulled into. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I can provide you with the ammunition. Oh, it's, I tell you, uh, you, know, you know, on Facebook even, the level of lunacy and delusion, and for me to use those terms, I don't use them lightly, um, is mind-boggling in people who otherwise I would say are probably mentally sound. But, um, you know, when it comes to Trump and, and conservatives or libertarians who think differently, um, I, I see very little critical and rational thought. Yeah, it's a mass delusion, I think. I mean, people have completely lost all sense of... I have friends, I, I don't want to name them, I mean, I have friends who work in media who really believe, and they won't even necessarily say this publicly, but they'll tell me, they really believe that Donald Trump uh, was working with Russian intelligence to cheat in the election and to defeat Hillary. Like, like this, that, that Trump himself was, I, there are people that, that that is what they think. These I know them. 
Well, and, and I look at them, I'm like, what, 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 how, why? This is crazy. I have had people who are brothers in Christ of mine at my church, and they know me very well in my heart, and they have said they were saddened that I was supporting an evil ideology because it said Trump did not call Nazis fine people. Oh, my gosh. I hear you, man. Look, I thank Rick. It's it's great to have uh, blue state folks call in. I'm like you, man. I'm 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 from behind the Freedom Hut is behind enemy lines too, right? I'm in the middle of a sea of progressive nonsense here. It's just me, the Freedom Hut team, and we leave this place. I feel like I, you know, I just I I walk out and you know throw on some sunglasses and a hat and hope that nobody on the subway knows who I am. The good news is they don't because they don't listen to talk radio in Manhattan, but. Um, All right, team, we're going to run into a break here. I will take uh, some calls. Also talk to you about this Finnish terror attack and much more. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. Okay. You got time to duck? (laughs) That's from Predator, obviously. You knew I'd get that one. Come on. I love Predator. Um, I will get to this other this other t- uh, incident, but uh, let's let's take a call here. Phil, New Hampshire, iHeart app. What's up, Phil? Hi, hey, Buck. Good afternoon. Good evening. Uh, thank you for taking the call. Thank you. Uh, I I just have to pass along that uh, and and admit being a double dipper today. I I called Michael Pelko's show because I had something that I I wasn't sure whether he was going to beat me over the head about it or take it okay. It was my idea to have a. Uh, a new party called the uh, I Only Want to Lose Once party, and we'll all vote in Democrats and just get it over with because we can't get good Republican representation. But uh, he took it well, and he said, yeah, okay. And he goes, then, then what do you call it? And I said, well, then we then we would call it the I Told You So party uh, after we all get run into the ground. But uh, the what I called to mention was really he, I mentioned your show as a show that I, I love. He, he keyed into that. I listened to a lot of radio and man, that, that guy said some, you should listen to the show. He said some great things. And, and apparently you're, you know, I, I've liked you a long time. He really said some, some flattering stuff. And, uh, so there you are. Thank and, you. Uh, well, I mean, I love the Godfather. Michael Pelk is a great guy. I, it, you know, it seems like, and then, uh, he was engaging and he listens and, uh, um, you know, you can tell that he's, he's dialed right in. Um, now I, I, I don't want to waste, ten, I can't, I use you in the morning to relax. So I, you know, I can't listen to too much more of the show, <laughs> but, uh, um, I have to do your podcast in the morning to get my day started. Right. But well, I appreciate that. I give, oh, by, by all means. And, and I appreciate it to you. It's my pleasure. All right, man. Shields high, Phil. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the call. Uh, so I, I said I would talk uh, for a moment here about the uh, attack in Finland. So it's in Turku, Finland. Here's the New York Times reporting. A man stabbed two people to death Friday and injured half a dozen others in Turku in western Finland before he was shot and apprehended. The authorities emphasized that the attack was not being treated as a terrorist act, but they did not offer any other information about the assailant's motives. The suspect, who was not identified, was hospitalized with gunshot wounds to one of his legs. Police urged people to avoid the city center while they continued their investigation. Security was tightened. Uh, okay. So, that's an interesting... So, that's what the police in Finland are saying. By the way, there already are a lot of reports that 
the guy was yelling Allahu Akbar. So anyone want to take a uh, guess as to what the motive might have been? Oh, boy. This is this is really this has happened many times now in Europe. It's happened uh, in the context of refugee Syrian refugees in Canada. Whenever authorities think that they're doing us a favor by hiding the truth, the truth from us when it comes to public safety, they are making the problem much worse. When they think that they can not speak honestly to us about what they believe to be an assailant's motives or what they believe to be. Uh, all of the facts of the situation as presented, obvious facts as presented, uh, it actually leaves an opening for people who do have much more radical views, whether anti, whether deeply actually xenophobic or anti-immigrant or anti-Muslim. It gives them an opening because the moment the authorities lie, whether in this country or any country that we're talking about here, about something like who was running around stabbing people, for no identifiable reason, other than, of course, ideology and jihadism, but uh, just running around stabbing people in a, in a horrific act of mass murder, when they won't give us all the facts which are necessary for us to be able to take all the precautions that we, we may choose to do as people who inherently every human being has an inherent right to self-defense and to make dis, uh, decisions about their own safety and security and their family's safety and security— when they hide information from us, it gives an opening to people who are going to be much less specific, much less precise, and much more exploitative to tell people what is happening in the situation, right? So uh, I, I think this is a very bad policy that's at work in a lot of European countries. You see it here, too. Um, not quite as much as you do in Europe, where they just they want to say that it's, oh, it's a... We don't know much. Let's let's slow roll the facts here. Let's withhold information. Let's not jump to conclusions. Yeah, the guy was running around stabbing people to death, yelling Allahu Akbar, but not clear what his religion is or what his ideal, what his motives may have been. Not clear. We may, we may never know the motive. This has become a uh, a very macabre uh, punchline, right? We, we we may never know the motive in a jihadist attack. It happens in this country too. Why is Europe going through this right now? I think that uh, on the one hand, on the on the bad guy side of the equation, you have that jihadists are seeing people who have radicalized but did not necessarily uh, want or are not necessarily predisposed to be violent jihadists. They just they just support, you know, they quietly support the Islamic State or they quietly support uh, Islamic fundamentalism. Um, they see what's going on and it spurs them to action. I think that's a part of it. They say, well, if others will take up the sword of jihad on their own, I can too. In this case, literally a blade of jihad. And so they act out on it. Um, they uh, And I think on the defense side of this, on the defense of Western civilization and on the anti-jihadist part of of this equation you would say that uh, we have a in Europe in particular a multiculturalist uh, fundamentalism really that is uh, in the midst of a true challenge right you have a multicultural uh, multiculturalism at the expense of security at the expense of rationality at the expense of truth in Europe 
it, it is not possible to look at the uh, the rise in particularly sex crimes in places like Germany and Sweden and not say that there's some tie to the vast influx of refugees from very disparate cultures. But in some European countries, they actually want to criminalize the discussion of this. When people try to suppress truth with the law, the there are very negative consequences. And as I was saying, this opens the door to those who would be um, willing to go way to, go too far, paint with too broad a brush, be unfair, be uh, exploitative of the sensitive politics of the moment. So they they are doing a disservice to uh, to their own causes, um, you know, in these countries that are trying to both be keeping their people safe and dealing with the multicultural uh, mosaic approach to all things. Uh, they are they are learning some very harsh lessons there, and we are watching this in this country, I think, and and also making some very similar determinations about what is uh, necessary when it comes to assimilation, what is necessary. When it comes to to the defense of our values, Western values, American values specifically, because we do have different values. Free speech is different in America than it is in Europe. They don't have free speech in Europe. And if we don't wake up real soon, we're not going to have free speech in this country either, by the way. It is under direct assault legally, culturally, politically, free speech is under assault in this country right now. And the, one of the primary methods of trying to change the laws and trying to suppress speech is in regards to hate speech, nasty speech, mean speech. That's what they will use that. I, I said to you the other day that just wait. Now it's Nazis. Soon it'll be mainstream conservatives. Uh, the Washington Times has a piece up about uh, mainstream conservative groups alarmed to be found on, quote, hate map. It's already happening, everybody. If they have the right... To legislate what is hateful speech, they have the right to legislate what is allowable speech, and they will expand and exploit that. All right, everybody, I know it's Friday, and you'd think that late August, Friday, you're not going to get much in the news cycle. False. Huge shakeup in the White House, among the biggest. In fact, I think if you ask people who are part of what could loosely be termed the conservative base, this might be the biggest, or at least have the most significance of any of these White House West Wing departures. You got Steve Bannon out. What is going on down there and what can we expect going forward? We got Sarah Westwood on the line to let us know. She is a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Sarah, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, so what are people saying down there? Just give me that. Like, was this everyone expecting it? What, what were the correspondents and the folks that follow this stuff thinking? Well, you know, everyone was expecting it, and yet everybody was not expecting it. Because on the one hand, Bannon has been the subject of speculation that he was just about to be fired since, you know, the early weeks of the administration. First, he was sparring with Chief of Staff Franz Priebus, then he was sparring with Jared Kushner, then he was fighting with National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. And each time there was a lot of speculation that he could be on his way out, and yet he survived for so many months that I think a lot of folks became numb to the rumor. So when he was finally actually removed, it came as a shock to some of his allies who thought that he would be able to outmaneuver his enemies this time because he'd done it several times before. Now, I'm seeing some reporting about 
Bannon Unleashed. That was the term that was used. Uh, Are you also hearing about that? Because there are these two narratives that I can't reconcile in my head about what this really means. On the one hand, you have, and, and these are from Trump supporters. On the one hand, you have people saying or writing that they, that Bannon is going to go scorched earth, that he's going to it's going to be war with the administration. He's going to be on the outside throwing everything he's got at Trump. And there's grandiose plans for the future and all that. But then on the other side, I've also and these are these are from Trump supporters I'm seeing on both sides and the other side. You have Trump supporters who are saying, no, this is fine. He's going to be advising on the outside and nothing really is going to change. And in fact, he could be more useful to the administration without having to worry about government ethics offices and all the rest of it. What are you hearing? Right. You know, I've also talked to some folks who uh, who have tried to, you know, clarify what exactly Bannon plans to do. I think that the scorched earth Bannon we're hearing about is just it's saying that Bannon is going to have the freedom to go after the president publicly and directly in a way that he can't now when he disagrees with the direction that the White House is going. So, for instance, if the Trump administration were to get more deeply involved in Syria, were to get dragged into a military conflict in Afghanistan rather than continue pulling out of that country, then I think Bannon would feel like he has the freedom and the leeway to go after Trump's specifically when he feels like Trump is departing unnecessarily from his campaign platform. He's not, however, going to go scorch earth on President Trump personally because he has some kind of vendetta against the president. Now, that's not, I think, what those rumors are pointing towards. But it is pointing towards Bannon being given back the freedom to champion the populist ideals and go after Trump when he thinks Trump is contradicting them. We're speaking to Sarah Westwood. She is a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. You can read her latest at WashingtonExaminer.com. So what is the state of play then within the White House in terms of the power structure? Uh, Who are who's left that's considered conservative? I mean, I know people say Stephen Miller, but is he co-opted by one side or the other? I mean, if you could just walk us through right now, who has the president's ear or at least what is the perception of who has the president's ear? Stephen Miller has had the president's ear for a very long time. He joined the campaign months before Bannon did. There's almost never been any speculation that Miller was anywhere near on his way out because I think Miller very shrewdly when he came into the White House aligned himself with people who you might think he'd naturally be opposed to, like Jared Kushner, for instance. They've taken on projects together. Um, They have a friendly rapport. Even though Miller's worldview is more closely aligned with Bannon. So uh, populists can rest assured that they do have Stephen Miller in a very powerful position within the White House, but he's not necessarily as aggressive as Bannon was. And he isn't this, you know, this populist hero in the way that Bannon had grown to become. There were books written about Bannon. Bannon had that public persona. That was part of the problem also. I mean, President Trump didn't like the fact that the public fairly or unfairly attributed his election victory in part to Bannon. So Stephen Miller is probably the best example of someone aligned with that worldview who's still in the White House. Sebastian Gorka also shares that view. Kellyanne Conway is from the same contingent within the White House. But certainly none of them had the mystique that Bannon did. Tell me about the Jared and Ivanka, or as I'm seeing it referred to on social media, uh, I think uh, the the Ivanka, Jared, uh, and what's her name? Uh, Meet me. um, uh, Who's the 
There's that Dina. Thank you. Sorry, the Jared Ivanka Dina wing of the White House. Is there anyone else that's that's a part of that crew? You know, Gary Cohn, the the chairman of the National Economic Council, is considered part of that group. Bannon's allies refer to them as the West Wing Democrats or the globalists. Um, they were always naturally skeptical of each other because they come from such different backgrounds because they champion such different worldviews. And it's interesting because Dina Powell and Gary Cohn are the type of people that you would expect to find in any other Republican administration, whereas Bannon would probably never have been in a high-level position within a West Wing of any other presidency except Donald Trump. And that's why a lot of the president's allies and supporters considered Bannon so valuable, because he was a true outsider who was there in the West Wing voicing uh, the kind of disruptive policies that President Trump championed on the campaign trail. Cohen and Dina Powell, on the other hand, there are two people who might lead the president in a more conventional, establishment-aligned direction. And some people think that might have a stabilizing effect on Trump's presidency. Other people are afraid that Trump will lose the support of his base if he does that. Just tell me quickly, if you don't mind, about your piece up on the Washington Examiner. Steve Bannon gave interviews to, quote, take a bullet, end quote, for Trump. What do you mean? It's interesting. So last night, allies of of Bannon were saying that Bannon had gone out and given four on-the-record interviews in the span of two days. Keep in mind, this is someone who rarely ever speaks to reporters on the record. He gave four interviews, and people close to Bannon were saying that he did that in order to draw fire away from President Trump. Remember, before the whole Bannon cycle took over, Trump was under intense scrutiny for his response to the Charlottesville violence. So Bannon did that in order to turn the page, get the president out of that controversy, and even if it meant it cost him his job, and ultimately it did. I saw your tweet, winter is here, from a source close to Bannon. I appreciate the Game of Thrones reference, which I'm also, by the way, I'm worried that Game of Thrones is also going off the rails. Forget about the White House, but that's a discussion for another time. Sarah Westwood, everybody, she's a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com for her latest. Sarah, great stuff. Thanks so much for calling in. We appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Thank you. All right, team, coming up, I'm going to be bringing on a friend of mine, Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL, to talk about his latest book. And we'll also have S.E. Cuff, my own colleague, my old colleague from The Blaze and Real News, who's got a big new show launching Monday. She's going to tell us about that and much more coming up. Stay with me. And in Webb on the line, he is a former Navy SEAL. He is a combat veteran with deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. And he is a New York Times bestselling author. His books include The Red Circle, Among Heroes, The Killing School, The Power of Thought, and his latest, which he is here to talk to us about because it just came out this week, Total Focus by Brandon Webb. Brandon, great to have you, my friend. What's up? Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited about the, the book. This, this is a pivot for me. This book is about entrepreneurship and leadership and all my lessons learned in business, losing a business, building it back from zero and applying a lot of the lessons learned uh, in the sniper program to business and, and life itself. So pretty excited about it. Well, can you give us a little bit of a, of a preview, some of the details here about how, I mean, because I think a lot of people listening, Brandon, are like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, I own a, an auto body shop. I'm a teacher. I, I am a, you know, I sell insurance. I, you know, how can being a sniper <laughs> translate into that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I talk about seven principles in the book. Uh, I talk about front site focus and how important it is to focus on, you know, your core business or goals because we get so many distractions these days. So that's a, a big principle. I talk about situational awareness in our personal life and in business as well. It's so important to, to pay attention on what's going on, reading the signs. Um, it's allowed me to pivot my company in digital media um, seeing that advertising industry change and we, we added e-commerce. Um, so I get into that violence of action as a principle. That's, you know, a, a special ops term where you just, you explain, explain it to us. Well, violence of action. I've actually, I, I don't even know this one. This is interesting. So it's, you know, imagine hitting a, a ship at night so hard and so fast, you know, you make a plan and you execute it very quickly and we'd hit these ships and they wouldn't even know it hit them and no shots fired because we've taken it, we've used a violence of action to take it over. And I, I apply that same principle to business and life. And there's a lot of advantage to, to making a plan and executing on it quickly. And that's a big thing in the book is execution. A lot of people, they're stuck in a job or career or business. They're not happy and they just can't get out. So I address that too. I talk about embracing the suck as like looking at adversity. That one I'm very familiar with, by the way, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's developing a habit of looking at adversity and digging out all the positives instead of getting drugged down and, and focused on the negativity. Um, that's that's a big principle. Lead from the front. I'm big on exemplary leadership and, you know, always as a leader, leading from the front of the pack as opposed to cracking the whip in the rear. Um, so, you know, it's it's truly my life lessons and work, you know, Using positive psychology in the sniper program, um, we talk about self-talk in, in the book. And self-talk, we all walk around and have self-doubt and conversations with ourselves. And I talk about developing a habit to change your self-talk so it's positive and productive as opposed to destructive. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great book. I also interview our friend Betsy Morgan. Uh, Kamal is in there. So I have these case studies of friends of mine who have, who have their own life lessons learned. So, so I, now, I, now I have to jump in. And by the way, we're speaking to Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL, New York Times bestselling author. His latest book out this week, Total Focus, is about applying principles from the Navy SEAL sniper school program, which Brandon helped develop, by the way, to everyday life and to business in particular. And he just mentioned two people, Betsy Morgan and Kamal Ravikant. Uh, Kamal is a mutual friend of ours who is just a general advisor in life for me, but particularly on the business side, on social media and tech. And Betsy Morgan is the woman responsible for bringing me into media. To give you a sense of how uh, adept she is at business, she convinced me in the span of an hour to forego business school, which I was already into and, in fact, had put a deposit down on with many thousands of dollars, which was all the money I had in the world at the time, to go and work for her and Glenn Beck at The Blaze. But go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, and so, you know, the book's core anchor is, you know, about making better decisions under pressure. But this isn't a gimmick or a get-rich-quick book. This is, you know, how I lost everything after leaving the SEAL teams, got divorced, lost my life savings and built it back. These are real stories and real lessons learned as well as, you know, the people I feature in the book that are sharing their life stories as well. And so I'm really excited about the book and, 
Brandon, what would be one thing, you know, because you know, I know your story, and people look at you now and they think former Navy SEAL, New York Times bestselling author, media entrepreneur. Uh, what would have been the one thing, if you could have paradropped, pardon me, but if you could have paradropped <laughs> into uh, your situation at your first business, which you just said you put everything into and it didn't work out, if you could have given yourself just one or two bits of advice, what would they have been? I mean, I would have said um, probably planning like really plan a little bit better and choose partners better i but i again i looked at all my lessons learned and 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 the failure as an opportunity to learn and grow now when i hire people for my team i look at chemistry you know is this this person may be extremely talented but are they going to be able to integrate with my team and you know you've done work at the ca and you know you know what that means that the chemistry is off in a small unit so you know that's there's a ton of stuff. Uh, I know what that's like at a, at a media discussion table, by the way. <laughs> it's the difference between yeah. a fun conversation people want to watch and, and a slow-motion train wreck. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and so, it, like I said, it's, it's real stories. You know, I'm, I share personal stories and my own adversity in dealing with divorce and losing everything and how I built an eight-figure business back from nothing. And so I think people will walk away whether they're a parent um in a career an executive or want to start a business i think there's a lot to to get out of this book brandon webb has a new book out this week check it out on amazon or in fine bookstores total focus by brandon webb he's a former navy seal best-selling author and a good friend and advisor of mine brandon great to have you sir i'll talk to you soon sounds good buck take care Team, we are going to run into a break here. When we come back, Essie Cup, another friend of mine, on her new show, which launches on cable this Monday. Give you a preview of it in just a few. Welcome back, everybody, to the Freedom Hut. Buck Sexton here with you. Very pleased to, for the first time on Buck Sexton with America Now, bring on an old friend of mine uh, from The Blaze and from... CNN and from Life, S.E. Cup joins us now. She's a conservative columnist and commentator and, I'm excited to tell you all, the host of S.E. Cup Unfiltered, which starts this Monday on HLN. S.E., great to have you. Hey, great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, can, let, can we, we'll get into the show in just a second. Everyone knows it's coming Monday, so I'm going I'm to hold that through as the tease because you got exciting stuff, just so people know Andy Levy's going to be on that show. Some fantastic what? people. I know, it's crazy. Some fantastic people. I just wanted to first get your take on what's going on in America right now. <laughs> you got Bannon leaving the White House at this point. I don't know what the story... I don't know what people who support the president are supposed to say today. That, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. Yeah, um, it's. I, I'd say it's been a rough week for the president, but really, you know, it's been a rough week for America. I think anytime there's this sort of unsettled feeling across the country... And that's mirrored in an unsettled White House with lots of personnel changes and a, and a and an executive who doesn't seem to, you know, know what he's doing from time to time. Um, it's just it's not good for the country. It, I think it breeds insecurity and some nervousness. And, you know, I'm hoping I'm hoping for the best. I'm hoping this administration can write its ship. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we got to do. And it's hard to do that when there's all of this angst and noise and distraction and tragedy and, and, uh, you know, unforced errors that are completely unnecessary. I mean, I just hope that 
this administration can clean up its act, get to work, get to business, take this seriously and 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 do the stuff that that, you know, Trump voters elected him to do. How much of the current uh, uncertainty, politically speaking, do you put at the feet of a Republican led Congress that if we're just going to keep it 100, keep it keep it real here? I see. What what have they done this year that we're supposed to be excited about? I I can't think of really much. Very little. Very little. And it's, you you know, you know me. I mean, longtime Republican and conservative. I'm I'm shocked that they were so unprepared once they took the reins of power. Um, I don't think I don't think the president's helped. But, um, you know, some of the things that that the Republican led Congress was supposed to do, you know, they've had years to work on and make sure that you know, they can cobble together some majorities between the factions in, in, in the House and the Senate. And, and really, it looks like they were caught flat-footed. And there's really just no excuse for that. Isn't it, wouldn't you say it's, it's fair to assess what happened with the Obamacare repeal based on all the... I mean, Essie, for those listening, Essie and I, for I can't even count the number of days, weeks, months, that we were sitting next to each other at the table at Real News and back in the... Remember remember that guy Mitt Romney, Essie? Back in the Romney uh, era? Basically, basically. Run, yeah, running against Obama. And we're just, oh, all these speeches and we got Ted Cruz and all these other senators. Oh, we are... This is a constitutional travesty and we will repeal and replace Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And then finally, after all that time, we've been waiting, Essie, we've been waiting and we're finally brought to the promised land of republicans clear sailing to repeal this thing i feel like it has to be seen as a betrayal of the base and what else can we say well it it really is and and i think it's just it's a reflection of the kind of dysfunction that has set in and you know i i love speaker ryan you know i do got a big old crush on him but uh you know I, i think there's been a lack of leadership and that's started at the white house and i think it's echoed down um, to to the legislative branch, and it just feels as if um, they're they're sort of directionless. And even when they're pointing toward a direction, they can't get all their you know all their ducks in a row to to, to head that way. So um, it's it's really I think an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment that Republicans now um, you know control the White House, the House, the Senate, and the majority of state houses, and maybe maybe. Right now, maybe the weakest the party has ever been in its history. And that's saying a lot, but that's that's how it feels. We're speaking to S.E. Cup, conservative columnist, commentator, and host of S.E. Cup Unfiltered, everybody, which launches on HLN, which is CNN's sister channel, launches this Monday. So it's premiering. Um, S.E., before we get into the details about the show, just one more for you. If coming back from vacation, Congress was to get one thing, and let's say Trump and the White House, they're all rowing in the same direction, and, and all of a sudden things start humming, you know, things are, are ticking along like a Swiss watch. I know fantasy land, but let's just pretend. What's the one area where you think they could have the most dramatic, positive legislative and policy impact coming back? I would hope on tax reform. It's something I've wanted Republicans to tackle for a decade. Um, and and I think I think they've got some pretty good ideas. And I think it's certainly less controversial than health care. Some of the other things that that uh, Republicans and Trump want to do. But it's so necessary. I mean, if you're just an average guy. Um, you are not impacted more than anything than taxes in your daily life. Tax code 
is archaic. It's impossible. It makes no sense. It punishes the wrong people and rewards the wrong people. And um, that's that's got to happen. I think that's something that every American across the country would feel the moment that changed. Do you see? I mean, I was trying to get, get us all going in a positive, happy because, you know, the weekend and whatnot. Uh, do, can you already see a, a hurdle that you think, if not insurmountable, is at least kind of looming in the distance like Mordor that might stop the Republicans from getting tax reform? I and mean, if you had to guess, what would it be? Uh, it would be Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> You know, all of these guys have been able to sort of um, either be quiet or tweet, you know, from the, the comfort of their own home back in their district about everything that's been going on. And when they get back to Washington, if they think that they're just going to go back to business as usual and like drinks at the Willard and, and, you know, life hasn't changed, they're out of their minds. The second they step back in Washington, they're going to be asked by every reporter to talk about the the, the, the stuff that Donald Trump has said, and, and it's largely indefensible. And so whatever agenda they have, whether it's tax reform or something else, that's all going to get caught up in the nonsense that, you know, the president continues to, to, to stoke and foment. If he could only get out of his own way, I think we could really see we could really see some progress. Yeah, well, nothing nothing succeeds like success and a major a major right. tax reform bill that all of a sudden everyone could look at and understand and see and think, wow, this is going to make things easier, better, and, and uh, more right. fair and much less social engineering via the IRS. I, I think that would be right. really positive for, for all involved, even for Democrats who will hate it. But, S.E., before we let you go, big show launching Monday on HLN, S.E. Cup Unfiltered. Tell us a bit about the show, what people can expect. Oh, I'm super excited. It's um, it's a lot of me. So if you're not into me, definitely don't watch it. But if, you, if you're not familiar, I think you'll really like it because we're tackling the stories of the day, but in a, in, in a way that I think is a lot different from, from other cable news outlets, a lot less screaming, more civil debate, some feel-good stories, some stories that actually matter to real people and not just like hill creatures. So if you, you know, look fondly back on life before politics interrupted it, I think you're 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 going to find a happy home at SE Cup Unfiltered because we're going to we're going to do faith stories, family stories, parenting, sports, pop culture and also politics. But again, in a, in a really refreshing, fun way. So I hope everyone stops by 7 p.m. Eastern Monday night and it's every night so i didn't spoil the surprise with andy levy right that's already out there i feel like it's not like andy was gonna jump out of a cake on monday like everyone knew he was on the show right oh yeah no i uh i i lassoed andy levy uh right quick when um fox canceled his his great show red eye and that's where we met years ago yeah i love that show i'm still sad they can't great show i i can't imagine they have anything better on at 3 a.m um you know which is when red eye aired but their 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 um you know their losses our gains. So he he sits to my left every night, and then we've got a whole great cast of um, fun guests who come come in and out of the show to to you know lend their their humor and their wit and it's just a fun it's a really fun finally a fun show to watch and to do, and I think people could use a little fun back in their news absolutely se cup everybody seven eastern this monday and then monday through friday every night on hln which is cnn sister network se is the host of se cup unfiltered uh, and my friend se congratulations on the show uh thank you so much for coming by and hanging out and come back soon thanks buddy thanks for having me on 
Team, we are going to run into a break here. We'll be back, and I'll be talking to you about the left's latest crazy assault on statues. You you would think that maybe there are some some things that are sacred, that, that there are some people even in America that are beyond, if not beyond reproach, at least beyond being defaced. Uh, you would think that maybe there would be some... Uh, figures in our history that we could all agree shouldn't be tarred, or at least uh, statues of them shouldn't be tarred, feathered, lit on fire, any of those things. But if you thought that in the current context, and if you thought that right now with what's going on in America, you would be you would be wrong. Uh, it turns out there is, there are no figures on the left who are entirely sacred. I'm There are, in fact, now going to be even more efforts to expand out the unacceptable, those who are no longer allowed to be celebrated in the public sphere because of their views on any number of issues. And if you think it's just racism and and slavery that are being viewed back through a historical context, oh, no, now they're going to add genocide into it, which means anybody who's been a part of wars in history that involved whole groups of people trying to kill one another. I mean, I don't know where this, you know, can, can you even, where does it stop? I mean, ancient history now, this is, like I was saying all week, there are no boundaries uh, that have already been defined for this. And so with the left, it's just going to be how far can they push it? So we'll we'll be talking about that. um, And uh, also, I will probably discuss with you some of my... Oh, I've got some good news for you all. Some news from the the general health front, because I like to give you helpful tips, as well as my uh, culinary secrets, the secrets of Buck. I can cook about six different things, maybe, but I do them well. Uh, and we'll close out the show together, team, in style. BuckSexon.com slash store for gear. My t-shirts arrived today. Don't forget that. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton back with you all now, team. Uh, it's not just a culture war that we see happening right now over the uh, monuments. I know a lot of you were fired up to talk about that yesterday. I think it can be more accurately described as a war on the culture. Let, let me explain. You see, a culture war has this, uh, I I think, connotation of people who are on one side of the culture versus people on another side of the culture, right? Should we say Merry Christmas or should we say Happy Holidays? But what I'm seeing right now is not, and you could could argue that that's a, a debate, a discussion that's going on within that culture, right? So that's one way of viewing it. And that's the culture war we often talk about it. And that's a huge subject and people devote their lives to studying it and talking about it. But a war on the culture is something a bit different. And I think that's what we have going on right now. That just means an effort to destroy, to raise, as in remove and eliminate. You know, uh, that's a way of trying to take whatever the Uh, foundational elements are of American culture and just remove them, destroy them, light them on fire in some cases, literally burn it. It's the burn it all down approach. It's not a discussion within the family, so to speak, of a culture. And it's not even really two opposing cultures. It's a statist nihilism on one side that a progressive statist nihilism that just wants, they want tabula rasa. They want a blank slate. They want to destroy 
what we think of as American culture, those institutions, ideas, historical figures that bind us together, uh, they want to eliminate all of that. And, you know, you see that happening right now. Great example is what, what, what just went down in Chicago. Now, I, I, I get that there is a lot of uh, passion on this issue of monuments and what was the, what was the Confederacy really about and what was, uh, what, was sla- what, what was slavery the sole reason that people were fighting and people say no and people say yes. And I, OK, I'm not going to solve that now and I don't even really want to spend any time on that specific part of the issue. But as I said earlier in the week, I think some of you who listen to the show will recall that I said it. It's only a matter of time before we are all told that we have to judge every historical figure by the moral compass of today, that it is no longer acceptable even to have been a, a great thought leader and a, a virtuous person for the time based on what social justice warriors, SJWs, think is acceptable today, uh, we, we must now go back and judge all of the figures in our past. So, I mean, for example, if they were to, if they were to find uh, somewhere in the writings of uh, Shakespeare that he was not pro-transgender. I'm just making this up, but you know, let, let's just say somewhere he wrote, he made a joke about men dressing up as women or something, or men who think they're women or whatever it is. You know, well, Shakespeare's transphobic, so we should abandon, we should abandon all of his works. One of the most important, really, you could, after the Bible, the most important uh, writing in the English language in in history. You could certainly make that case. Uh, so that's. A movement that is gaining steam right now because it, the left is drunk with power. Uh, now that they feel that the Trump administration has rightly or wrongly, uh, in your estimation or ho- however this really plays out, they think that there is an opening here, an opportunity to just r- run roughshod over all of conservatism and the Republican Party because the left believes that Trump has. Uh, profaned and desecrated conservatism or or at least made it unpalatable. Uh, and so part of that is that they no longer have some of these uh, compunctions about what they're willing to say when it comes to our history and our past. Case in point, Abraham Lincoln. I said to you earlier in the week, it's just a matter of time before, you know, Ulysses Grant or y- you'll find people on the civil in the Civil War who were fighting to abolish slavery who will be considered racist, though, in their discussions of black slaves or, you know, by the uh, by the judgment of today, there was something about them that would be unacceptable. It's only a matter of time before they say that even the North, that, that, that Civil War monuments that include people from the the good guy side, if you will, or how, and I know that some of you are like, that's not fair to Confederate soldiers, whatever. I, I'm again, I'm not trying to get into I'm not trying to litigate that right now. That's a huge that's a huge issue. I'm just saying that it was I said it was only a matter of time. And here we are. OK, Abraham Lincoln, you, you'd think that both sides. I mean, Obama, when people would talk about comparing the greatness of Obama to a president that, you know, they would they would throw out, throw out there how, you know, he was the greatest president since Lincoln, right? I mean, Lincoln is, I think, uh, the most rev- the most revered president in a bipartisan way, uh, with the only real competition. Okay, 
maybe Jefferson and Washington, fine. But for a lot of people, I think Lincoln, because of his role in freeing the slaves, because of the Emancipation Proclamation, and of course, Lincoln being a martyr in this whole process as well. Neither Jefferson nor Washington were martyred for their uh, for their righteous causes. So given all of that, you'd think that Lincoln wouldn't be targeted in all this. You'd think that Lincoln would be in at some level, in some way, perhaps beyond reproach. But you'd be wrong. Up in Chicago, there is a century-old bust of Abraham Lincoln that was erected by Phil Bloomquist, and this courtesy of the Federalist, back in 1926, it was uh, defaced and uh, lit on. They broke the face. This is a statue of Abraham Lincoln, everybody, in in Chicago. It was defaced and lit on fire and scorched, and somebody spray painted the words "F Law" uh, on one of its columns. So can someone explain this one to me? If we're going to take the left at its word that it is first and foremost concerned just with not not having uh, Confederate memorials around there, not, not, not uh, perpetuating white supremacy or a legacy of oppression against uh, African Americans, um, I, I, I would like to know who, how would anybody ever think that it's a good idea to, to burn a statue of Abraham Lincoln? Well, you see, Abraham Lincoln is, was a white cisgender male, and there is, along with this whole movement to get rid of Confederates like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and, and to uh, get rid of you know, all the, the Jefferson Davis highways, I'm sure some of you may have seen that uh, there is a a, a storyline spreading around the internet that the Jefferson Davis highways were all a project of the Daughters of the Confederacy, and there was this whole scheme to rewrite the history of the Civil War using Jefferson Davis highways. I, I read it. I, I haven't had the time to independently look at the sources on it, but it is out there right now. They're telling us that this is what's going on, but then we see that Abraham Lincoln is getting set on fire. And we have prominent TV commentators saying that Jefferson and Washington are also beyond the pale. And we have now people pointing out that Christopher Columbus owned slaves and was the start of a genocide in in North America against the Native Americans. I've said that this would all happen, too, and it is happening right now. Now, it may recede, it may go away, but it does give a window into the mentality of what's at work here. This isn't. This sense of pull down the monuments, break them, spit on them, get rid of it, is not driven uh, entirely or even predominantly by a desire to just reject the history of the Confederacy. This is about the left being drunk with power and just wanting to burn it all down. You see, the left, and this was... Uh, This is embodied in the modern Democratic Party in many ways by many of its leaders. It certainly was part of Barack Obama's approach to leading and and being the president of the United States. The left believes that America is a sinful place with a history that has to be atoned for, has made all these terrible mistakes. And only if they are in charge can it become the promised city on a hill. But to get there, 
They're willing to destroy everything that up until this point we have revered, including Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. They will burn it all down so that the progressive status can start anew. Mark my words. Quick break here. Then we'll close it out with some food talk. Be right back. Well, team, we're getting ready to uh, close up the Freedom Hut here for the weekend. Uh, wanted to make sure that you know you can get Team Buck gear at bucksaxon.com slash store. Always uh, fun to see people posting on their social media all the latest in Team Buck fashion. They've got hats, T-shirts. We're working on some mini commie bears. That'll happen one day. Uh, but I also wanted to send you into the weekend with some good news. Swiss cheese, according to a news article that I read of who cares how much scientific credibility it was in the New York Post. So it was published somewhere by people. Uh, it says that Swiss cheese is a superfood. Now, I am almost like Homer Simpson in that I will eat just slices of Swiss cheese. You will recall, perhaps, that Homer once sat down with American cheese. And I think it was something like. 64 slices of American cheese. Uh, that's kind of how I feel. If I see a big brick o Swiss cheese somewhere, I go after that thing like a pack of hungry mice. Uh, but I, I love Swiss cheese. I love any cheese. In fact, this weekend I will probably find some excuse to tell Molly when I'm going to the store that I would like to get some form of brie. You know, and I, and I prefer it if it's not called brie, but it's basically brie because we all know that eating brie is kind of like just eating straight up butter, but and you know heavy. It's just eating heavy cream, really. Uh, but it's amazing. So yeah, Swiss cheese is supposedly uh, not just good for you, but a superfood, in fact. And it has uh, one slice of Swiss cheese contains eight grams of protein, two hundred and twenty one milligrams of calcium. Uh, it is. It has the most vitamin B12 of any cheese, and it also has Propion bacterium freudenreichi, uh, which is a probiotic, I think. Propion bacterium freudenreichi. Yeah, it's Swiss cheese. You know, the Swiss accent, it's kind of like a German accent, but they're maybe a little more subdued and sounds almost like they're switching into British and then maybe switching into French and no that, that I see I just lost it there so you have to with the German you have to go all in the moment you start to go away from the German you start to sound like you're doing a British see it just you switch into it you pull a Hans Gruber from Die Hard ever that movie is Germans are like mach schnell mach schnell and uh, they actually you're yelling that when they you know, weiter weiter when they're like telling them to get the uh, Missile launcher ready. It is action movie quote Friday. But then you get Hans Gruber who's like, oh, Mr. Takagi will not be joining us for the rest of his life. He never, he never breaks into the German accent. I think at one point he says like, shoot das Fenster or something, like shoot the windows. But Hans Gruber doesn't have a German accent in Die Hard. I'm just saying. Some people gave me a hard time about how the action movies that I like, by the way, are from decades ago. That's because that was the golden age of action movies. This is like, do, do, do people make fun of you when you say that Led Zeppelin is one of the greatest rock bands of all time? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to pretend that, what, Matchbox 20 is in the same league? Now I have to quietly admit that I, I've listened to a fair amount of Matchbox 20 in my day. Uh, Rob Thomas, I believe, is his name. He's, he's rather soulful, if, if a bit cheesy. Uh, but, you know, come on, right? Just because it's a little older doesn't mean it's not good. Speaking of cheesy, Swiss cheese, very good for you. Also, cottage cheese. 
which gets a bad rap, I think, sometimes because people say things that look gross look like cottage cheese. Uh, but cottage cheese, cottage cheese is delicious. And I'm really an amateur fromagerie at this point, uh, where I guess that would mean that I'm a, I'm a, I sell cheese. I, I'm an amateur fromagier, uh, somebody who just really likes, likes cheese. I usually have some form. I'm a soft cheese guy, too. I know hard cheese is better for you. It lasts longer in the fridge. Or We all know that we serve our cheese at room temperature, right? I'm just somebody actually had to correct me recently. Not that any of you are going to care about this at all. Maybe you will a little bit that red wine is supposed to be served cool, not chilled, but cool. I thought it was just supposed to be served like you open up the bottle that you've left you know, under your desk for a while. Uh, but no, apparently red wine is supposed to be cooled, which I don't know what the specific temperature is there. It's not quite chilled, but it's a little bit a little bit less than that on the on the thermometer. So uh, I'm going to, yeah, this is me thinking about how I'm going to be having wine and cheese this weekend. Uh, Molly and I have some plans for that. I'm also hoping to expand my culinary adventures into perhaps doing some kind of a, I, I mentioned reduction sauces. I've got a, a, a creamed tarragon chicken in a, well, it's a reduction sauce that I'd really like to give a go to. I'm also trying to convince Molly to eat seafood because she doesn't really like seafood. I find seafood amazing. Those of you who live in parts of the country, which is pretty much everywhere now, including Alaska. Alaska is actually pretty warm in the summer. I remember I went up there. Um, if you're going to be outdoors grilling, actually, as a side note, Alaskans told me when I was there, they're like, I mean, it's not cold here like Minnesota in the winter. And I was like, ooh, I see how it is. Just just throwing, throwing Minnesota, uh, you know, in the middle of, of the of the scrum. Uh, so I'm going to be hopefully this weekend. Uh, well, I'm not going to be cooking out because in New York City, that's kind of hard to do. But I will be cooking it up a little bit. But I try to convince Molly that seafood is good. She is okay with tuna, but not much beyond that. And I'm somebody who I like everything except for uni, which is sea urchin in sushi, you know, Japanese cuisine. Uh, Pretty much all other seafood I'm into. Although I will say, and this may be a little controversial for some of you, I I may I may lose a couple of you over this. But I think that swordfish is overrated. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to say it. I think swordfish is overrated as a protein for the grill. I think that it's often a little chewy and a little fatty. And I would much rather have, let's say, a Chilean sea bass, which listeners of this show know is a renamed version of the Patagonian toothfish. True story. In a stroke of PR brilliance. Some fishermen and fisheries and companies decided that the Patagonian toothfish was not an attractive name, so they renamed it Chilean sea bass, and now it's a, uh, I believe, a billion-dollar fishery. It's a huge uh, product, uh, a lot of it obviously coming off of the coast of South America. So I think there are much better fish options out there. I love scallops, and I'm trying to convince Molly. To, she does, you know, some people just have their foods they don't like. People try to convince me that they try to convince me that— uh, sun-dried tomatoes are acceptable and i'm just like why do you hate america because sun-dried tomatoes are the grossest they're they're the worst they ruin anything they're in that's right i'm gonna say it they ruin anything that they are in it's like oh all these other ingredients you put in that's fine i can't taste them because i'm too busy chewing on this shoe leather that you call sun-dried tomato i i I, that's right i I hate sun-dried tomato i'm not afraid to say it all right with my little culinary diversion here i'm getting excited about what i'm gonna be cooking this weekend uh, I'm going to let it uh, I'm going to let things simmer uh, excited to be with you every day next week. So please do some of your thoughts over the course of the weekend about the show. 
Uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is a great place to do that. You can also follow me on Twitter at Buck Sexton. I'll be on Fox News tomorrow with Judge Janine at 9 p.m. Eastern. And also earlier in the day, I believe around 10, 15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with Trish Regan. So doing some Fox tomorrow. Tune in if you can. Until Monday, my friends, my colleagues, my allies, my brothers and sisters, shields high.